Spooks with Denzel Myrick and Douglas Skelton. And welcome to Spooks. And today is a very special Spooks indeed, because we have multi-million best-selling American author, Mr. David Baldacci. David, how are you? I'm doing great, thank you. It's absolutely fantastic you could take the time out to be with us in Spooks today. It's, uh, sure. you know, it's we've had many fine authors on, but none who have sold as many books as your good self. Well, I've been around a long time, that's why. <laughs> Douglas has been a lot, around a long Haven't time. Haven't we all, David? Haven't we all? <laughs> Douglas has been around a long time too, but let's say his sales aren't quite as impressive as yours. <clears throat> Certainly not. No, but I know you're trying, Douglas, so we're not going to put you in that position. Don't very, worry. Yeah, very <laughs> trying. Very trying. Now, David, you grew, you grew up in Richmond, Virginia. Yes. Um, now, over in in the UK, um, stupidly, people won't be as aware of Richmond as they are of New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco. Can you tell us a little bit about Richmond, please? Yeah, Richmond was the, um, I guess, its most, its greatest historical significance. It was the, con- the capital of the old Confederacy during the Civil War. Um, so we were the, you probably heard maybe in the news about all the Confederate statutes on Monument Avenue, and they've been there for 130 years, um, heralding all these Confederate generals who fought to keep people enslaved and they finally removed them all after 130 odd years and sure so I yeah so it was a city of you know when I was growing up was totally segregated and I was a you know a guy I used to say unless your last name was Lee Jackson or Stewart or Jefferson Davis nobody gave a shit (laughs) (laughs) so I I had a very ethnic last name and I was in this very homogenous white society and um, it was interesting you know observing it all it really was and of course, you're of Italian extraction. Yes. Um, from Braga, which is the, one of the most beautiful little hill towns in Tuscany. Yes. I, I have a huge. Do you, do you go back very often, David? Mm. I've been I've been to Braga, and um, I've seen where my grandfather grew up, and I, it was interesting. I thought I was just going to have lunch with the mayor there one time. And I brought my family when we were over there. And um, it turned out it was David Baldacci Day in Barga. <laughs> wow. I had to give a, a speech. And I mean, it was just a whole day affair. It was unbelievable. I didn't expect any of it. It was kind of cool. That's, that's amazing because it's, I've got to admit, Tuscany is one of my most favorite parts of the world. It's a, yes. I think it's just, a, it's just, it's an assault in the senses, isn't it? it? Well, it is. They know how to live too. I mean, you can linger yeah. over a meal for two or three hours. It's about friendship and good food, good wine, conversation, and all the stuff that we typically don't do in America. <laughs> or, or here in, in the UK either, I've got to. I think in, in, in this country, it's many more similarities between us and, and America than there are between us and European countries. And I don't, Bill Bryson famously wrote, when he first moved to the UK, that he thought that he, he would have thought by watching the news that the Atlantic was 27 miles long and there was 3,000 miles of the English Channel because <laughs> you get American news and everything on, on British TV, but you never get any European news. Um, but that's great. So you started writing very, very young. You're, tell us how, I think your mum was instrumental in beginning your career. Yeah, it came sort of a roundabout way. Um, I was the kid in our neighborhood who was sort of um, designated to come up with all of our adventures. So I would choreograph the battles we'd fight, the adventures, the, the journeys we would go on, and I would assign roles. I just loved to tell stories, and I never stopped. I never stopped talking. I never really. In fact, after a while, they started calling me the Austin Avenue lawyer. It's the street I grew up on because I was I would ar- argue with people and all the time, usually to get myself out of trouble. And ironically, I grew up to be a trial lawyer. So you sure. know, that they, they, were, they knew about that early on. So I was about eight years old and my mom <clears throat> came and gave me a, a journal that she had bought. She said, you know, all these stories you've been talking about, why don't you try writing some of them down? And I have to say, as soon as my pen hit the paper, I had this epiphany, this revelation of I love to read and I can create stuff that other people can read and how fabulous that would be. So I never really looked back. I started writing short stories and, and screenplays and novellas and eventually novels. And I went back to my mom, you know, decades later and I said, mom, what a, what a true gift you gave me that day. It changed the whole trajectory of my life. And she just looked at me. I'll never forget that. She's looked at me and said, son, I'm so glad it's worked out for you. But if you want to know the truth, I just wanted to shut you the hell up. 
my mother just used to slap me across the head and go and say, just go and sit in that room. <laughs> yeah, 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 but Denzel, you deserved it. <laughs> well, probably. Probably. Douglas. Well, I, yeah, we'll see. The, the slapping didn't work. That's why she gave me the book. <laughs> I, I wish my mother had gone to those. But funnily enough, I, I did a very similar thing. But I, I wrote at a young age as well. I suppose you did as well, Douglas, did you? Oh, yes, yes. It's a strange metamorphosis that writers go through, mm -hmm. I think. Um, Douglas, you have a question for David. Yeah, so I mean, you, you became you became a, a trial lawyer, David. So, the, the discipline of that—do you think that's added anything to your to your writing at all? I, I think so. I mean, I've talked to—I've been friends with John Grisham and Scott Turow and other uh, writers who were, used to be lawyers, and mm -hmm. the the profession share a lot of the same attributes. When I was a when I was a lawyer, you know, all the the only arrows out of my quiver were words, either spoken in, in court or written in a brief. And I had to argue the same, you know, I had to use the same set of facts the other side had in the case, trial record. And I had to argue a diametrically opposed viewpoint from them. And the way I did it was I emphasized certain points and de-emphasized those. I told a story that I wanted the judge or juror to believe is actually being the one that was right and acceptable as opposed to the, the ones on the other side. So my whole world was research, interviewing people, building stories, crafting those stories through words and language in certain direct and distinct ways. And I would work on trial, I would work on cases for years at a time. So when one, somebody would tell me, geez, it might take you years to write a book. That was my whole life basically. So, and I have to say that some of the best fiction I ever wrote was when I was a lawyer. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's like some of the, the more I made up and more trials I won. <laughs> well, I, I, I was a police officer, David, and it's much the same thing. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing, isn't it? I have to say, you know, during, during COVID, um, when everything was just horrible across the world, it, I, I found myself writing more and more and more and just wanted to dive back into the words just to escape. Um, yeah, and uh, that was that was really the only silver lining for me. I think that was quite a common response. I mean, I, I know Douglas and I were the same. I, I, I've written so much in the last two years, and Douglas, you've done similar, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, a fair bit. Yep. But how, how did how did COVID impact you, David? You, you know, in in this country, I know I know things were slightly different politically across in America. Certainly for the first part of. Of, of lockdown what was the impact on you personally was it did you find it really difficult I did because typically I travel a lot I go to events I see people um, mm. and that's a big part of my life you know, I certainly enjoy that I I always tell people as a writer you're part of this small ecosystem and if it's it's readers writers publishers booksellers and if everybody doesn't shoulder the responsibility the ecosystem dies just like it does in nature so i like to tour i like to go to independent bookshops i like to support that ecosystem so that was all taken away but you mm -hmm. know it was it was you know you wanted i wanted to be personally safe i wanted my family to be safe and my friends i didn't want anybody to catch this so we all just hunkered down and again like you two i I'm way ahead of schedule. I, I wrote, I think over the course of COVID, I probably wrote, you know, five books. So I'm way ahead of schedule just because I was, I didn't, that part of my life was gone. So I just stayed yeah. at home and uh, I tried to turn, you know, a, a really a, a negative into a positive and that was the only way I could do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Douglas. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so you, you moved on from directing the, the kids in the street <laughs> and the various <laughs> games and, uh, getting a notebook from your mother and eventually you became a trial lawyer and then you wrote your first book. How long did that take you? So that was absolute power. So how long did that take you? Absolute power took three years from mm -hmm. start to finish. And it came about because I'd been writing screenplays up to that time. And I'd, I'd gotten an agent in Hollywood based on my screenplays. And I wrote one back in 1991 called Reverse Order. And it was really like Die Hard in the White House before they made all those Die Hard in the oh, White yeah. House movies. Yeah. This is a long time ago. <laughs> and I, I, I had just uh, started with a new firm and I had flown up to Islip, Long Island, New York, um, and even though I was mostly a trial lawyer, I was assigned to work with this team of lawyers. Uh, our client was buying a bunch of banks. So we went up there to review uh, bank ground leases. If you ever have a problem sleeping, just pick one of those suckers up and read the first page and you'll be dead asleep in like three minutes. I just read, um, I just read one of Denzel's books, David. <laughs> <laughs> it works the same. Huh? Better than, better, better than Ambien. <laughs> I, I'm going to get him back. Don't worry, David. <laughs> 
So the script was out while I was up there and I'd gotten, you know, messages from my agent. Oh, Warner's is really, the coverage on this is great. Warner Brothers is looking at it, Paramount Universal. It looks like this is one that's going to sell. And I got back to my, um, my, my hotel and around midnight because of the time difference, my agent called and said, you know, Warner's passed on it because there's the herd mentality out there. Everybody passed on it because they thought mm. something was wrong with the script. Sorry, it's not going to happen. I remember walking past the White House because my office was near there. And I've been, you know, I'm a fan of a student of history and I'd read a lot, a lot about Camelot and the tryst that Kennedy would have. And I thought, what if something really bad happened in one of those trysts? Because the president, you know, a thousand careers are tied to the president. If he goes down, all these people go down. What would people do to protect that? And let's say the president was a bad person and he did something really bad to a woman and the Secret Service had to step in and do their job, save him, but really murder someone. Um, how mm. would that play out? And that was the story for absolute power. I had a burglar who saw it all and he was the good guy and all the people you typically thought were good guys like secret, secret service agents turned out to be bad guys. Mm -hmm. So I spent three years writing that while I was practicing law. Well, I wrote in the middle of the night, early in the morning, whenever I could find some time and I eventually finished it after three years. So you, sorry, can't Sorry, you, you wrote it as a book, not a screenplay. I wrote it as a book. I thought, because I've been writing it by that point for decades and I mm -hmm. thought, you know, you've done every other type of writing. Why don't you try, you know, this is this is the big kahuna. This is the long form fiction. Let's try a novel. Uh, yeah. I, I like the premise because I hadn't really seen anything like <clears throat> out there before. So I went for it. Mm -hmm. And then it was it was bought by Clint Eastwood to so yeah, well, time movie. Well, eventually, first it was bought um, by a, a production company, uh, Castle Rock. Um, oh, and, right. they, and they assigned William Goldman, um, mm -hmm. the screenplay writer, to write it. So I spent time with, with Bill. Um, working on the script and we he came down to dc and we drove around looking at some locations and just talked about the story and i remember getting a a call from uh, bill goldman probably you know like seven or eight months later after the, after the, the script had sold after the book had sold and he said you know david i've got some great news for you and i've got some terrible news for you and uh i said okay well give me the great news first he said well legendary filmmaker clint eastwood assigned to star direct and produce uh, absolute power and the movie's green lighted it's going to get made congratulations i said that's fantastic i said what's the terrible news he said the terrible news is that legendary filmmaker clint eastwood has signed to star direct and produce your film your book is pretty much gone <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I mean yeah, it, it was just one of those things that the, there was a young lawyer, the burglar was played by Eastwood in the book, the burglar gets killed halfway through. But when Clint Eastwood signs on to be the star, he's the hero, you don't need another hero. And so we had to figure out how to keep Eastwood alive. And I remember Bill called me up one night, like while he was writing the script, and I think he'd been drinking because he was like pissed. And he said, he said, I can't figure out how to keep the son of a bitch alive. Do you want to have a shot at it? <laughs> and I was like, no, Bill, I spent three years writing the book, killing him. So no, I really don't want to do that. <laughs> it's, it, it's really strange. I'm, I'm going through that process at the moment because my books are being turned into a t television show. Yeah. And um, it's really hard. Well, it's a strange business to let go of your characters, isn't it? It is. And here's the, here's I'll, the, uh, Here's the advice I give a lot of people. The first is, and I'm in the middle of, I've got like four TV series in development right now. Yeah. And with each one, here's what I did before I signed the deal. I met with them um, and I asked them to tell me their vision for the characters, the arc and the story. And if that is close to what I think is right for the material, then I sign the deal. But I've had times when they've given me an arc and the character development and their ideas for what they want to do. And I've just said, no, that's the only ammunition that you're going to have. Because once the deal is signed, they can do pretty much whatever. And you know, you can put all the rights in the contract you want. I, I want to have control over this, blah, 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 blah. Okay, yeah. here's, here's my other piece of advice. And it served me well for 25 years. Mm -hmm. you, never have, you never want to have so much control over a film or TV project such that if it fails, they can blame you yeah, <laughs> and they will, you know, to, to the extent that you, they might see you in court and that's not where you are. Well, I'm only the executive producer, so I'm now really, really worried. No, no, you, you know, you, you give input on the scripts. They might like look at the dailies, you know, here's your opinion on this. They don't listen to it. And then, you know, when that happens, here's what I do too. I go back because I make a copy of all this stuff. I go back and I make, and I look at the, the copy of the check they gave me and then everything's cool. <laughs> I do I do like the checks. That's one thing I really enjoy. It's, it's a, and, and look, it's getting your work out to a broader audience than otherwise would be. 
um, and it opens it up to other people coming in and maybe wanting to turn some of the other stuff into it. It's, it, it, if that's the worst thing that ever happens to you, then you've let a charm life. Well, I've got to say, I'm absolutely thrilled with the team we've got. And, and it's good that we've got a Scottish screenwriter, um, Anthony Nielsen on board, who's, you know, we're really in tune with what, what's going on. But Anthony's also, um, he did a show recently for HBO uh, called I Hate Susie. Um, so he, he's a, he, and he's done movies he's done lots of stage plays as well so he's, he's got the kind of that breadth of experience that you know I think you kind of need don't you yeah I think it, it also I think a guy who's done had that the spectrum of development and work that he's done he probably has the, I think the chief thing you need to have is a sensibility and respect mm-hmm. for the, the source material and people who you know who have read the books and are really into it are much more respectful of the material rather than somebody who, okay, this writer's really hot. Well, I'm going to grab him because I can get some cachet after turning one of his projects into, you know, books into a film or a movie. So that's what I'm going to do, but I don't really respect the material. I may not have even read the, the book. I just read the coverage on it. So I found the yeah. ones that really have read the series, if it's a series of books and are into the characters, they're going to be as protective of them as you would be. And that's the best case scenario, actually. Have you ever been let down by, I know you don't have to give me individual instances, but just generally, have you ever felt let down by anything that's appeared on screen? I have. Yeah, absolutely. I have. And, yeah. um, it, and I think it was because um, the, the lack of sensibility, it was more like, okay, I just want to, I want to, the person who was doing it was doing it to put a feather in their cap, not to make really great series. Um, they just wanted to have their name attached to this and they did it sort of a slipshod manner um, and it could have been so much better uh, but that's just the way sometimes the, the bigger you know you, it's like when people come and they're oh my god this guy's a huge director this woman's a huge she's done all this stuff and you're like that sounds like it might be a good thing but it also lets you know that they've got their fingers in a lot of pies they're oftentimes mm-hmm have a lot of business demands and on, on their shoulders and people are expecting them to hit up one hit after another. They can't really spend a whole lot of time on each one. So it gets to be like almost assembly line. And yeah. um, so that's, I, I, would, I would take somebody who hasn't done a whole lot, but is so into the material, they know it as well as the writer does. And that's the sort of person you want to have developing and turning it into, into, the, into the movie or the series. And I got to tell you, you know, I, I, the British television, my wife and I watch it all the time. We're you know, we do the Outlander series, we do the Shetland series, we do the Vera series. We're doing, par- we're watching Paranoid right now, which is just, you know, I don't know why we didn't know that before, but it's a terrific series. But there's heart and depth and soul in this stuff. And it's, yeah. not, it's not cookie cutter. No, I think that's, that's what we, we are after, you know, real depth. And real depth is, as you well know, is hard to achieve in a short hour format or whatever it is. Um, and that's the, I suppose it's the trick everyone, everyone's, it's everyone's goal. Um, but, but it's, it's very interesting. And as you say, it's a, it's a great way of getting your work out there. It is. And I've, I've always felt that in either a book or a film or television, um, the moments that separate good stuff from really great stuff are all the small moments. I look, the big, big events, the big, you know, big sequences in a book or a film will take care of themselves just because they're de facto exciting. You know, there's action, mm. there's gunfire, whatever. It's the small scenes, the character interaction, the little things that people remember so much from films and television. Because really, you know, that's, that's the only time that you can show the people being human that other people, the readers of the audience can relate to. So I've always said that focus most of your energy on the small scenes, because uh, the big scenes typically take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Great stuff. Douglas? Yeah, well, I'm just sitting here thinking, I don't have any TV or movie deals. Um, <coughs> well, you, well, you do. You're presenting I'm, a true crime show. Yeah, well, a single documentary. I'm not bitter at all, but I, I do act out my books in front of my dog. But anyway, so... What, what uh, David, a thought, David, what a thought. <laughs> so, you know, 1996, Absolute Power came out. We're, we're uh, 26 years down the line. 44 books and seven children's books uh, you, you've done in that time. And those are the ones that are published. Um, well, you can tell I'm coming up to your more recent stuff now. And Mercy in particular, which uh, is the most recent book you've had. I know there's one coming out uh, soon 
uh, and we'll come to that shortly. But Mercy is the fourth book in the Atlee Pine series. Um, so how did you, you know, how did you jump on this, this character? A couple of reasons. I don't mean to jump on in, in, in that way. I heard somebody <laughs> laughing there. And I, I, I must take that back. How did you, <laughs> what was the inspiration for this character? I've done a lot of, uh, and I knew what you meant, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've done a lot of female characters in my novels and um, in law enforcement and agents and all that. I've ever had one who was a series, solo series lead. They were always partnered with someone. Years ago, I wrote um, the first novel in the Kingdom Maxwell series is called Split Second. And I mentioned in that novel, an organization called WIFLE, W-I-F-L-E. It's a real organization, it's an acronym. It stands for Women in Federal Law Enforcement. And I got, shortly thereafter, I got a call from the head of that organization and said, you're the only author I know that's ever mentioned Wiffle in a novel. Would you love, would you like to come and be our keynote speaker at our annual convention in Washington? So I did. I went to Washington. I was in a ballroom of 500 women. They all had guns. <laughs> you know, I've never been that intimidated in my life. So, but I, but I, you know, I gave a talk and, but I talked to a lot of the agents and I, I, I know a lot of female agents over the years. And I know how they have to work twice as hard to get to the same place as men because it's a male dominated arena. So mm-hmm. I, Adley Pine was kind of my, you know, my symbolic gesture to all those women to show that, yes, I understand what you have to go through. And I understand that, you know, female agents can be just as good, if not better than men. And here's Adley Pine to sort of demonstrate that. And the other reason I came up with the Adley Pine series, you know, this four book series with her sister, I, as a writer, when you've been doing it as long as I have, you need to keep challenging yourself. And the way to do that is to get your get yourself out of a comfort zone, try something you've never done before. Mm-hmm. So my, my challenge here was to write a four book series where each book had an individual plot that would mystery that would happen, occur, and then be solved by her. But underneath that was a se- separate second plot where she kept chipping away at the mystery behind her sister over the course of four books. So I'd never done that before where I kept sort of mystery alive for four novels. At the same time, I was tackling individual mysteries in the same novel. Um, so that, you know, that was a way for me to keep fresh and energized and on my toes. And, you know, so I'm not going to sit down in front of the computer and go, gee, how did I do it last time? Um, which is, that's a death knell for a writer because then you just become sort of this widget factory and yeah, uh, what's that good for? No, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and, and clearly she's been through an arc now, and now we're getting to the fourth book. How how do you feel that change is? Is that change been partially because of your own experiences, or have you just envisaged and seen that in her? I think it really is what I've seen in her as a character on the page. Obviously, you know, whatever happens to her, I have to come up with and think about and build on the pages. But I really. You know, I, I try to put the identity on her shoulders rather than mine. And I feel like she's, you know, evolved with each book. Um, sure. And look, when, you, when you're searching for someone like she's searching for, <clears throat> there's, a two, there's twofold reason to it. One is, yes, you want to find out about the person. If they're still alive, you want to get to know them and rebuild that relationship and have your sister back. But the second part is totally personal to you. It's you need closure, regardless of whatever it's going to happen, whether you're going to find a live person or, you know, a, a grave with a body in it. Mm. Um, you need to do that in order to move forward with your life. I mean, I've met people in my life who have had unanswered questions and it's really held them back. They, they, they feel stunted. They can't move forward. Um, and closure allows people to do that. And that's what she, she's been seeking through the course of these four books. Did, did you know you were going to do four when you started it? No clue. I didn't know it was going to be three, four, 12, 15. You know, I read, I read where JK Rowling, you know, knew that the Harry Potter series was going to be seven books. She outlined all seven books. <clears throat> yeah. I'm like, that, that's amazing. You know, but you know, I, that's not, that's not how I do it. So I, when I got, when I finished the third novel, I looked at what was ahead conceivably that she could find out what she'd already found out and how long it would take her to take that information and move forward to a resolution and figured that the fourth book would be the finale. Mm-hmm. It's a really, it's really an achievement. I have in my hand at this very minute, your book, The Camel Club. Yes. And because I studied politics as you did, I have a real interest in this as well. Uh, and I was I'm absolutely enthralled by this. Um, is that, does that come from your studying politics when you were young, David? Yes, I'm a very political person. And mm. um, 
my 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 kids are my wife my wife is as well um and <clears throat> i have to tell you when the camel plate came out because when it came out we you know things were happening in the world that we all know about um, sure. and i boy the hate mail and death threats i got from that were just phenomenal which i knew they were going to be um which is part of the point um i wanted to make people think about these things you know we have some states over here now that are they're, they're banning any, any subject in schools, uh, K through 12 schools, any subject in the schools that I love dogs. I'm a dog. I'm a dog person. They are the greatest, <laughs> greatest animals in the world, including human beings. <laughs> um, we, we, we don't get to do any of these, these podcasts without Mickey piping up at some point. <laughs> I love it. We'll give her, give her a hug for me. Um, and but so these states are passing laws that you you can't teach any subject in school that would make uh, kids or their parents, in parentheses, white kids or white parents uncomfortable. Sure. Um, and which is, I mean, how how are you supposed to do that? Books are supposed to make people uncomfortable. You know, that's how you learn. That's how you get out of your comfort zone. So yeah, the Camel Club is sort of a result of my frustration with everything that was going on in the world at that time. Um, and I just felt like I needed to write this book. And it was the beginning of the Camel Club series that ended up being five books and was one of my most popular series. But yeah. I just, I was consumed by it. And my, my um, you know, my only way to vent was to write it down in the pages. You know, I've, I'm absolutely fascinated by it because of the politics and everything else. And, and you know, it's a, it's a brilliant story interwoven with it all too. You know, David, could you tell me a bit about your process? So it's whatever, I suppose you're one of these early starters. Um, so it's whatever time in the morning. What does David Baldacci do? Does he just tell, give, it, give me a sort of pre-say of your day? I, I get up early and um, I like to... I like to work out. I like to stretch. I'm, you know, at the age now where stretching is more important to me than working out. Although I do work out. Oh yeah, so also get, yeah, you got to you got to keep limber, and it also kind of you know it allows me to think about things that I want to do that day. Um, and I usually, um, when I'm in Virginia, I'm in Florida right now. But when I'm in Virginia, I, I go to the office. I have an office where I have you know people there who uh, work with me to handle everything that uh, other than the writing and. Um, and I'm usually there, you know, all day and I don't, mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily writing every day, but I'm either researching, I'm thinking about things, I'm reading books, I'm interviewing people, uh, for my books. And, um, but a typical day, um, is atypical cause it could be every day is sort of different for me. I will say that I don't count words or pages. Uh, I know a lot of writers do, but mm. I, I just start, seem very artificial to me. So I typically, if I'm writing, I'll write until my tank is empty on a particular subject. And then yeah. I don't know how many words or pages it is, but when it's done, it's done. And I, you know, I'll go back home and, and um, but it's, I never turn it off. You know, I'm, I'm working on this stuff all the time. Late at night, I'll pull up stuff that I'm gonna go over. I'm gonna edit pages. I'm thinking about things, I jot down notes. Um, I do little outlines. I don't outline the whole book. I mean, I've never done that. Um, I just, I never know the ending of any book. I sit down before it, before I write it, sure. which I think is good. It's a journey for me. I want to have the same journey the readers do while I'm figuring things out. And I've always, I've always thought that, you know, if you outline the whole book and then you sit down to write it, outlining is a very different process than writing a novel. Outlining, there's no urgency or stakes or anything, you know, but you mm -hmm. know, I've got this, but I can change it if I want to. Okay. But I like to write, as I call it, in the trenches where I have to make split second decisions, you know, more or less, but I'm in, I'm immersed with the characters in the story and the events that are happening are happening that moment. I don't have the luxury of outlining things and going back and changing it later. So I'm in the moment and I, yeah. I feel like your mind works faster and better. You see, it's almost like on a football field where you see in every player, you see every, the ball trajectory, everything is happening and you see it all and it slows down and you can make good decisions because you're there and sure. it counts so that's that's really how i write but i think i'm i'm as prolific as i am because i never turn it off um you know you could ask my wife i'm gonna we could be at a party i'm sitting over in the corner staring off and a person comes over to my wife and says michelle um has david had a stroke he looks like he's not well <laughs> and she'll look over and go nope he's just finishing a chapter give him five minutes he'll be back can i have another drink please thank you <laughs> I, <know. clears throat> I think i think we all find that I'm not a planner, and I know Douglas isn't either. 
uh, and it is new, you know, if it's new to you and you find it interesting, you can only hope the reader will find it that way too. And yes. I find myself staring, I mean, you're in Florida, David, I'm currently on Loch Lomond side and um, the rain is sort of slanting into the windows and it's blowing uh. a gale and it's trying to snow. Um, so, you know, I wish I was in Florida. I've got to say. <laughs> I know. Well, we once we became, I didn't think I would ever be a Florida, part-time Florida person, but when we became empty nesters, we'd been down to this part of Florida a lot when our kids were little. Um, and we decided, you know, we had the liberty, you know, flexibility to do that. So we come down here and I, you know, look, there's nothing wrong with it. I enjoy it. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, I, I'm a great, I, I like I like America a great deal, and, and I'm a huge fan of New York, and and the and the states north of New York. I I love that part of the world. Yeah, New England is beautiful. It, absolutely, it's just just gorgeous, and you know I love the way of life as well. There's, people expect when they go to America from this country that it'll be very modern, but I find the first first time I went to America, I found that it was old fashioned. And, yeah. and people were more courteous, yeah. um, especially in small town, and you know, the likes of Massachusetts and New England and places. It was a much, it, it had a vibe from us from the 50s and 60s in a way. And that that took me by surprise. Yeah, people, you know, they tend to stick to their roots there. And um, traditions are very uh, important. Um, and yeah, I... I I, I feel like if if more people read books, we'd have a much kinder, gentler world. Um, you know, I can I can spot a book reader from a non-book reader in about five minutes just talking to them. Sure. Um, you know, more, more people are more open and tolerant, less prejudiced, and all that. I was reading a statistic the other day where it's um, 54 percent of the adult population in America read at a sixth grade or below level, um, sure. which you know, democracy is unsustainable with that. So. Um, and we're seeing the ramifications of that now. And of course, you, you're, you're intimately involved with that with your foundation. Um, yes. To encourage literacy in, uh, throughout the United States and beyond, I believe. Yeah, it's, uh, not just, it's not just about, you know, reading a book on a beach. It's about being an active member in a democracy. Where, you know, any, any, any um, country where you have the right to vote, um, the credibility and sustainability of that country is dependent upon how informed that vote is. Um, and people who are not well-educated, not well-read, can be a lot more easily manipulated than other people. They don't have any context with which to you know, form their own opinions. Mm. You know, his, reading history is, is a wonderful thing because it allows you not to repeat the mistakes that have come from there. We, you know, all the stuff that's happening now across the world, we've seen it all before. It's happened before. And we know what the results of that were. And here we are bar barreling down that road again. Yeah, I think ignorance is the rock upon which democracy is being broken, isn't it? It is. It absolutely is. And, you know, I see examples of that every day. Yeah, yeah. Douglas? Yeah. Do you want to tell us a bit more about the, the Wish You Well Foundation, David? So we, my wife and I formed it about 20 years ago. And the reason it came about, when I first started out and I was traveling around the country and around the world, a lot of my events were sponsored by libraries, friends of the library, uh, literacy organizations. So I got a crash course over a year or so about how dire the dilemma of literacy was in this country, you know, the, you know one of the richest, if not the richest country in the world, and one that people look, look up to as sort of this beacon had this huge illiteracy problem. So our, our thought was, okay, we needed to sort of combat this. And, what we do with the Wish You Well Foundation, uh, people send in grant requests to us, organizations from all over the country. We get about 5,000 requests a year. And we're not a huge you know, foundation. And we go through them all and we fund as many of those as we can. We, were, we funded programs and organizations in almost all 50 states and counting. And it helped you know, millions of people read at higher levels. Uh, we also have a book collection effort. We call it Feeding Body and Mind. There's an organization in the United States called Feeding America. It runs all the nation's food banks. You'd think in a country like the U.S., we wouldn't have any hungry people, but we have lots of hungry people. So we felt there was this connection between illiteracy, poverty, and hunger. Um, so when you would, we would, I'd go out on tour, I'd send these big boxes ahead. My fans would fill them up with new and gently used books. We'd ship those books to local, to food banks around the country. So people going in seeking food assistance often are literally challenged as are their children. So they get food to bring home, but they also get books to, to bring home. And I've, I've never seen a bad result from a book being at home. I've seen many bad results from no books being at home. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's a it's it's a I mean, in this country, as Douglas will attest, uh, it, they're in the process of closing down pub, public libraries, mm. and there's nothing more sad than seeing a library closed down. In in my view, because it well, is, yeah. 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 Well, they're going to have. Well, you know, if you keep closing libraries down, here's and you think you're saving money, you're just going to have to hire more police officers. That's a yeah, direct, it's a direct causal effect, isn't it? It is. It really is shocking. And and but back to the back to the books, um, David. Uh, you're 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 writing this series about this woman who's obviously trauma traumatized um, by what's happened to her and Atley. Do you think what what would peace? Will she ever find peace? And and what would that peace look like for her? I think for her, peace would be to have some semblance of a family back, to have someone, her own flesh and blood that she could see and relate to and talk to. Um, when you, when you, she had that for the first six years of her life. She had a mother and a father and a sister, a twin, which is the closest connection you could have to someone. And then it was all ripped away from her bit by bit. So mm. that was a, that was a hole in her in her soul, like a black, you know, like a black hole, and. Um, she couldn't move forward because that was like a gaping wound. She couldn't staunch the bleeding. She just was weak the whole time because she was losing blood. So for her, it was to fill that hole and to actually have something of what she used to have before. It's almost like a touchstone that she can rely upon. Somebody there that's her own flesh and blood that she knows loves her and cares about her. Um, and that's important. You know, the, the, I think one of the hardest things to live with um, is loneliness where you feel like there's nobody really out there who has your back, who really cares about what happens to you. You know, this old adage about living in a big city, um, you can be the loneliest you ever are, you know, surrounded by millions of people. Um, and it's really true. So I think loneliness uh, leads to depression and depression leads to a lot of bad outcomes. So it's filling, it's filling that hole in her soul. Yeah, I can understand, above the, above the dog. <laughs> Mickey, Mickey's the Mickey's the boy. I'll tell you. I, know, um, I love love that name. Yeah, I think loneliness is true, and and sadly we live in a society whereby loneliness is at a premium at the moment. I, I think that that's uh, statistics are unbelievable in terms of people who now live solo lives. They don't get married. They don't have relationships, and it's growing and growing and growing, and and more and more, and especially sponsored by the problem that has been COVID. People are living their lives through through screens. And they are. That can only be detrimental to to humanity. Surely, it, like we've already started to see that, and I think they're about to try to take it to another level. You know, Facebook is now, you know, Meta, Meta, whatever. Yeah, they're prom they're promoting the metaverse. So instead of trying to help people actually. Um, interact with, deal with, talk to in a personal way, real people, they want us to now inhabit this metaverse where it's all fake and we're not, and we're buying stuff that doesn't exist. We're walking into buildings that don't really exist. And we're talking to people who don't really exist. Mm. God only knows. It sounds to me like, you know, a sci-fi flick from the fifties that has the, the biggest, you know, disaster in the history of the world. You know, I'm like, I've seen this movie. Stop. It ends really badly. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. don't I do it. I, I'm, I grew up in the, I was born in 1965. So I grew up in the 70s and early 80s. And, you know, I'm so glad that I did because, you know, it's just such a different world than it was then for young people. Uh, it, it is they don't have the personal I mean uh, they don't have the personal skills they you know they will text somebody who's sitting right next to them <laughs> instead of yeah. actually turning and just talking to them there's something to be said for interaction and using your imagination and not being in front of a screen all the time and look I mean, one of the biggest problems we have right now is that people turn to the internet for their information about everything but they go to sites that are that seem to be the most appealing and are the most disastrous and deadly because you know they they spread in disinformation and lies and people believe it and you, I, for me to, to see not just people who are not well educated but people who have PhDs going down mm. these rabbit holes of conspiracy theories, <clears throat> yeah, it's just I think it's a combination of one the stuff is really compelling and if you get on there you could you know make you believe anything and but two as you as you pointed out before 
people are not interacting with other human beings that have a reasonable, rational conversation with another viewpoint. They're just, they're just following these rabbit holes that are just mm. reinforcing what they already believe. Yeah, as, as a, as, you know, I, I do despair about the state of the world. And, and of course, we've got all that's going on um, in Russia and yeah. Ukraine at the moment, which goodness knows must be really, is really, really concerning. Yes. Um, your wider view, um, United States in itself, I mean, I think some of us have looked on with concern as to what's been happening. And I know that Barack Obama is a huge fan of, of your work. Um, and as far as political alignment, you must look and, and wonder, you know, what's the next steps? I mean, I was watching Joe Biden on television last night and, I, and I, I, the man looked quite frail, I must be honest. Yeah, and I know he's got the, the hard, one of the hardest jobs, if not the hardest job in the world. How do you envisage the mo the movement in, in American politics? Have we seen? Are we seeing the end of polarization, or are we seeing just the beginning of it? <clears throat> Unfortunately, I think we're probably just seeing the beginning of it. Um, unless something happens that can turn it around. Um, all signs point to it becoming more of a deepening divide. And you see cracks, a lot more cracks appearing all the time. And that, again, you have the former president um, heralding Putin, calling him brilliant and a genius. You have the former secretary of state aligning with Russia. You have GOP leaders saying that, you know, Russia should take over Ukraine. You have a, you know, pundits on certain cable shows saying that, you know, who cares about Ukraine? Why should we care about Ukraine? And they'll be they'll be saying, then we'll be talking about, well, okay, who cares about Poland? And who cares about this other country that Putin wants to invade? And all of a sudden, USSR is back where it was. Yeah. Um, these people are, you know, just short-sighted. They're also selling an agenda. Uh, you know, yeah. I have no idea where their allegiances lie, but, um, and then we have other people, you know, people, members of Congress talking about secession and civil war and breaking up the country and things that you never would have heard even 10 years ago. Uh, yeah. So I no, I think the fire is going to grow bigger until somehow it gets put out. You know, 2022, obviously we have elections in November and then 24, the next presidency. And that's, those those will be two, you know, very interesting, important bellwethers. Oh, yes. And I think I'll be absolutely glued, glued to, as I was to the last election, it was fascinating <laughs> yeah. and horrifying all at the same time. Yes. Um, and it was just, you know, as for the Capitol building, I mean, I thought, I never ever thought I would see no. such no. a thing. And I'm sure as an American, you, you were even more disbelieving of what was happening before your very eyes. Yeah, I never thought I'd love to see the day. And just, um, and then to see how then, you know, after that, how people are kind of trying to spin it, that it was just... You know, it was a good thing. Just patriots do what they're supposed to do. And it was just another day at the office. And, you know, not that many people got hurt. So what's the big deal? And uh, mm. just un unbelievable, not, you know, not even confronting the fact that it was an attempt to overthrow the government. <laughs> yeah, that's what's the, that's, that's the core problem. You know, you know, talking about what happened in the day and, and the actual, this guy with, with horns sitting and, you know, that, that, that these are just optics from but the core of what was really going on underneath that is is the real worry isn't it yeah, it is because if you don't if you don't trust so every time your person doesn't win they're going to storm the capital and say it was you know fraud and and even though you you've had a million chances to prove it and even your own auditors that you've hired to come in and do it like they did in arizona these you know ninjas um mm. You know, their result was, yeah, Biden actually won by more votes than they thought, <laughs> you know, but yeah. the, th the thing with the conspiracy theories is you can never win an argument with them because they'll just say, yeah, but yeah. here's yeah. here next. We just have to look at this. And then that's proved not to be true. Then, yeah, but that's because these people did it. They're hiding this. We need to look at this. So it's a never ending battle. It is indeed. Douglas, have you tamed the dog? 
<laughs> I, hopefully I have, yes. <laughs> I heard you I heard you wrestling off microphone with yeah. I thought <laughs> I thought it was best to leave you to your own devices. Yeah, hopefully he's he's settled down and I've shut the door. Uh, so that, that might help a bit. I um, thought it added, it added a lot to the show, actually. Yeah, <laughs> always that. people are disappointed if he doesn't uh, pipe up. Uh so it's actually a recording. I don't have a dog at all. Now <laughs> so, you know, Mercy, which is, is out at the moment, it's contemporary. But one quick question before I go into my main question is, do you think you'll, you'll continue with the series? I don't want to give any spoilers away, but what do you think? Yeah, I think I think she's going to be come back in a couple more books. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think I'm done with her. I've got a, you know, I've built a great character. And now that she's, she's a little bit liberated because this, you know, again, this hole in her soul has been filled in and she can do some other things. And it'd be mm-hmm. interesting to see where she goes next in the future. Yeah. Well, not about done by, by uh, Denzel. I have in my hand a copy of a, a Gambling Man, which was the second in the Aloysius Archer series. What, what made you decide to go back in history? I know that two of your favourite detective movies are The Big Sleep and Chinatown. So did that inspire you in some way to, to go back to the 40s and 50s? Yeah, it did. I mean, it was a time period when you know, my, my dad and all five of his brothers fought in World War II and post-World War II was really quite an upheaval, not just in the United States, but around the world. People were, in this country, we've gone through a depression, a world war. People were sick of being poor. They were sick of fighting. They were sick of sacrificing. And they just wanted something better. They wanted peace and they wanted prosperity and a second chance. So the 40s and 50s were sort of the highlight of that. And But with that came a lot of crime. You know, people, a lot of people, like a thousand a day were moving to Los Angeles. Um, because that's, you know, the, the air was perfect, the weather was perfect, there was money, the, the streets were paved with gold, and all the women looked like Marilyn Monroe, right? So everybody wanted to go there. But what follows prosperity, you know, is crime. And that's why LA is a perfect place to set a private detective like Aloysius Archer. And I've been, you know, a big crime war fan my whole life, and, you know, Raymond Chandler, and Dashiell Hammett, and Ross McDonald, James Elroy. Um, there was an atmosphere about that time, and in the books, you know, uh, the clothes and the cigarettes and the cars and the drinks they have add a lot to that time period. And you can craft some pretty nifty mysteries. And as a student of history, that time period has always appealed to me. Yeah, yeah it's, it's fascinating to go back on. Um, I, I, I did a bit about the Second World War in one of my own books, and I really enjoyed the research for that. And I know you've d- Douglas delves further back into history in his books. Yeah. Uh, is it something you're, you're going to expand upon, David? Yeah, I, I am. I mean, the next one, um, next Archer book comes out in April. It's called Dreamtown. It's 1953 in Los Angeles. <clears throat> and he's now a full-fledged PI working cases in LA. The, you know, this is the golden age of Hollywood with all the stars and the studio systems and all that. And um, it's, you know, I really think I'm hitting my stride with Archer now. I finally found his voice. Um, I feel like his character is fully fledged out and I could now that it's almost like you, you primed an athlete, you trained an athlete and now you can set him off to compete. Um, and yeah. I think he's got all the tools to be a really, really great character over a lot of books. I look forward to reading them, Doug. Did, did you pick his name on purpose, David? Was it a, a, a tribute to, to Ross McDonald? <clears throat> yeah, Lou, Lou Archer is probably, yeah. I, I have to say that um, Dashiell Hammett sort of started it, Raymond Chandler refined it, mm-hmm. Ross McDonald took it to another level. You know, his character, Lou Archer, is one of the best characters of any genre, I feel, and, and so is his writing, just yeah. deeply psychological. And see, he was the guy who mastered the small moments in the book. There's, you know, big events happen in the book, people get killed and there are twists and turns, but the small moments, uh, he was just a master of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had used the name Archer in a book years ago, Total Control, it was a woman, Sydney Archer. I like that name. Um, Aloysius is the name I've always really liked, and, mm-hmm. but nobody can pronounce it or spell it. That's why it just goes by <laughs> Archer. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've had so many interviews from people, not, not just you know in the US and around in other countries on Zoom. And, and so they said, so anyway, your, your character, Aloysius, um, tell me about him. 
<laughs> and, I, and I would very politely say, you know, absolutely. So anyway, when I created the character of Aloysius Archer, and they said, that's right, he's a terrific character, the Aloysius. <laughs> yes. <laughs> of course, this this uh, love of Royce McDonald is something you shared with, with William Goldman. Um, so you, you you know you're crossing paths there again because he 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 did the screenplay to the moving target. Yes, um, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Bill Goldman gave me one of the best pieces of advice. Um, he said, you know, the, the the moment that you think you figured it out what it is to be a writer is the moment you should go sell insurance because you've lost your edge and that chip <laughs> that you need, uh, to do it. He said, I get up every day, and he, you know, what my greatest fear is. And I said, no. He, I said, he said, I get up every day that people will finally figure out today I have no idea what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a huge fan of William Goldman. Um, he's He is one of my literary, and not that I write screenplays, but screenwriting heroes. Yes. Um, a fabulous, fabulous writer. And I would recommend his books. I'm sure you've read them. David. Oh, I, I, I have. Yeah, absolutely. I have. And, you know, and to adapt like Princess Bride, he wrote the book and the screenplay for that, which yeah. is iconic. I mean, there's just a film that will be timeless forever. You know, Marathon Man. Oh, yeah. warning, warning to anybody who doesn't like dentists, don't read Marathon Man. Yeah, or, or see the film. <laughs> or see the film, right. Is it, is it, is it safe? <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> So what do I mean? You, you have a vast array of characters um, that, that you call on in, in, in all different series, and so you're, you're now doing historical. How do you how do you juggle the various time periods? It's uh, I'm when I was a lawyer, I was really great at compartmentalizing because I had to. I would work on multiple cases at the same time, but when I was on one case as opposed to you know the other five, I was juggling. <clears throat> there was nothing else that existed in the world for me other than that one case, and I approached the books the same way. So everything else that I've been working on is completely shut out, and my total and complete focus um, is that book that I'm working on. So whether I'm working on an Archer in 1950 or a contemporary novel with Atlee Pine or Amos Decker. That is my, the, the sum total of my world um, and nothing sort of breaks through that. That's one of the disciplines, you know, I've built up over the years that has worked well for me because quite frankly, writing fiction demands total immersion. Um, you're creating something that didn't exist before you thought of it. And that demands your full attention. Ha halfway, half-assed, just it's not going to cut it. Mm. Yeah. So let that be a lesson to you, Douglas. No, I'm writing that down. I'm getting, I'm getting, that, getting, I'm that. getting that in a T-shirt. Halfway, <laughs> half-ass, just not going to cut it. That's, that sums up your career today. <laughs> you've touched on a, a few things that you're, I'm aware that time's moving on, David. You've touched on a few things that you're doing. In the future. Could you tell us what's next for you? Are you, you're, you you've got one of your historical books coming out set in the 50s. What's after that? So I, I, because of COVID and I sat home and wrote over the last two and a half years, I have three books coming out this year. The next one <clears throat> is in July and it's called The 620 Man. Um, it's a book I, I thought of while I was riding on my bike down in Florida last winter. And it's about totally different. It's younger characters. It's set in New York City. The 620 comes from the train this guy takes in from Mount Kisco, New York into Manhattan every day where he works in the financial world. Mm -hmm. uh, and things that he sees on the train and then things that happen to him in the city. I kind of call it, if I were going to pitch it as a movie, I would say it's Wall Street meets Gone Girl meets Girl on a Train. <laughs> oh, that, yeah, that says a lot, it? It, says, it says a lot. So it was interesting. I've been to New York, you know, hundreds of times and I know the city really, really well. I've never really written about it. And this is my opportunity to sort of do that. The characters are in their 20s and 30s who are younger demographic. Um, and then right now, um, I'm working on finishing up the next Amos Decker book that'll be out in October of this year. It doesn't have a title yet, but um, this will be the eighth Decker book. And he probably is the character that fascinates me the most just because he's really different. Yeah. But it's and the you, old thing. Sorry, Douglas, carry on. Sorry. No, you go on, Denzel, because I'm going off on another tangent. All right. Okay. Well, I'll look forward to that. Um, it's the old thing, isn't it, David? writers never retire they just sort of fade away like like rock stars you'll never stop doing this will you no because i tell people it's not a job it's not a hobby it's not a passion it's my identity so yeah um it's you know it, it it's me and i'm it and so it's not like i can just say well i'm done here's my last page and i go off and do something else even if i you know I get to the point where i'm not writing stuff that should be published anymore i can't imagine not sitting down at my desk and 
just writing stuff out. It just, uh, I've been doing it virtually my entire life and to take that away from me, then I would be left with a black hole, that's for sure. It's so, it's so compelling. Douglas, are you going to tangentialize? Yes, I am. It's just <laughs> earlier you mentioned the, the, the TV projects and <clears throat> a little bird has told us that you've had two books adapted by Hallmark uh, of, of, all, of all things. How, yes. I mean, how did that yes. come about? And isn't that quite unusual? Yeah, I, I'm the only thriller writer in the world is that not one but two Hallmark movies made. So yeah. the, the first one was The Christmas Train, which was a book I wrote only because um, I was working on a, on a thriller at the time. I, I had been asked to give a speech to the California State Bar in Anaheim. Uh, and I wanted three days by myself to finish this book, no interruptions, nothing. So I found you could take a train, two trains actually, across the entire United States from Virginia to California. And I did that three days. I finished my book. But while I was on the train, you know, train people talk. And unlike on a plane where you sit next to somebody and they look at you and it's like, you know, you touch, you touch the armrest, I'm gonna knife you. You know, so but on a on a train, people love to talk. And I by the time I got to California, I had like 50 pages of notes. I flew back home. And I sat down to write this train trip about a guy, you know, going over the holidays um, and he's taking this journey. It's not just a geographic journey to go see his girlfriend. It's really a journey of his life about where he is. He's sort of a midstream. He doesn't know where he's going to go at this point. So Hallmark uh, loved it. They bought it. They filmed it. Um, it's, it's the highest rated movie in Hallmark history, which is, you know, <laughs> I know. And so the, the second one was one summer. It's a book I wrote. The only reason I wrote it is because my son was being confirmed in the Catholic church, which is the last major rite of passage for a Catholic until the, the last rites. And my wife had told me to go to the church to save seats because we had people coming in from out of town for it's a big event. And so I went there early and I was there for like an hour and a half. I knew the priest, you know, and it was just him and me in the church. And I just thought of this idea or a story and that in the premises that this guy is terminal he's got three little kids his wife is taking care of him home hospice um and they're all getting ready to say goodbye and you know they're going to have to leave their lives without him um but then by a twist of fate he becomes the surviving parent um and he has to rebuild his life and rebuild the, his connection with his kids who thought he wasn't going to be there and the story unspooled in front of me because um, it had, had a little bit to do with the birth of our first child and some complications my wife had and my feelings that, oh my God, you know, is it just going to be me uh, raising our child? And, um, and I wrote the book really quickly and it came out and did well. And um, then Hallmark optioned it, I guess, last year, some point, <clears throat> no, optioned like five years ago. And I just thought, okay, you know, they just optioned, they're not going to make it. And last summer, I got a call from my film agent and they said, do you know they're filming one summer in North Carolina right now? And I said, no, <laughs> nobody told me. Um, and then, it, you know, it, it was a good movie. They did a good job. They, it came out and it did really well. And Hallmark did so well. Hallmark came back to my film agent and said, can he come up with something else? What we'd like is kind of like a football related theme involving the military. <laughs> <laughs> oh, easy peasy. Yeah, it's like, okay, you know, I've got stuff going on. I'll get back to you. <laughs> Dude, that's, it's, it's, it's brilliant stuff. It's been really, really fascinating talking to you over the last hour or so, and I'm sure our listeners will, will really enjoy it. But before we go, can we ask you one last question? You are a young person in school. You're maybe conscious of the fact that you don't want to fit into the nine-to-five, Monday-to-Friday routine you want to write, but you don't know what to do. What, what's your advice? So many people, the, the biggest mistake they make is they look around and say, what's trendy? What seems to be selling? I mean, when Jurassic Park came out, I swear to God, every book and movie <laughs> pitch had dinosaurs and it. it could have been a romantic comedy. You had a T-Rex running down the hallway. Um, <laughs> and this, the same with the Da Vinci Code. When Da Vinci Code came out, everybody wanted to write code books. Here's the thing. Oh, yes. writing, writing is a hard slog and you want to have your creative fuel tank filled up to the maximum. Otherwise, you're going to run out of juice halfway through and you're going to give up. So here's how you avoid that. <clears throat> Find something. And it sounds, it sounds commonsensical, but I swear to God, 99% of the people make the mistake. Find something that you are incredibly interested in. Don't write about necessarily what you know about. Write about what you'd like to know about. And then you go out and find out about it. And I, I always give this example of Laura Hillenbrand. She wrote a book called Seabiscuit. 
about this yeah. racehorse in the 30s. Mm -hmm. Brilliant book made into a film. Mm -hmm. She had, when she wrote that book, she had chronic fatigue syndrome. She couldn't even leave her house. She'd never been to a racetrack, never ridden a horse. But she was fascinated by the story of Seabiscuit, this horse with a chip on his shoulder in the 30s and nobody thought it was ever going to be any good. Mm -hmm. And she spent, you know, you know, years of her life immersing herself in the world of racehorses, racetracks, this, this horse in particular. And that passion and interest came out in the pages and the prose and everything and lifted it above the sludge piles. And her energy tank, her fuel tank was full all the way through. It was a fantastic book, a fantastic read, only because she was interested in this horse. So when I say find something you're interested in, I really mean that because I swear it will help every aspect of your novel writing, of your storytelling, whatever you're writing, a script, a novella, a short story, a book, it doesn't really matter. You've got to be fueled. And the only way to be fueled by it is to find something you're really interested in and take the time to do it. Just don't jump off on something because that's what everybody's writing about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's really sound advice. So Douglas, that is, that is good that's another point. I thought so. No more dinosaurs in your books, Doug. No, well, I, I, I really want to see that hallmark romantic comedy with the T Rex running down the corner. I think that would be brilliant. It's on. It's, it's on Thursday night. <laughs> Thursday night on Star. <laughs> David, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. It's it really so appreciated, and and I'm sure Douglas, you share that. I do. Yeah, thank you very much, David. It's been absolutely fascinating. Brilliant, yeah, same, brilliant same chat. Here. Same here, Ladies guys. and gentlemen, thank you, David. It's, that was David Baldacci.